Uh, we started the book of James last week, and we will be in James for uh, nine weeks, so ten weeks total. Um, if you didn't get one of these, if you weren't here last, last week, that's probably not good. Um, go ahead and grab one of these. Uh, this is our devotional that we wrote that goes along with the book of James, and so you can grab one of these. They're everywhere in the lobby on every table there is, so grab one of these, uh, and we've written it so that you will actually accomplish it. You'll do it. There's two devotions per week. So if you're already doing a Bible study, then you can just read these other two with whatever you're doing. Or if the idea of a bunch of devotions overwhelms you, there's only two. There's only two per week. So, uh, and the, the verses that you'll study as you do this devotion complement the sermon text that we studied that particular week. So grab one of these on your way out. Uh, as I said, we're going to be in James chapter one today. Uh, I've got just a couple things that I want you to know about uh, while you're turning over there. The first thing is uh, we, we changed our budget process the way that we've done it. Instead of doing calendar year, we've changed it to start July 1 uh, and go all the way to June 30. So uh, because of that, all we did for the first half of this year is just kind of keep the exact same thing that the church had approved uh, uh, for the first half of this year just to get to July 1. So uh, right now, uh, we're going to have a member meeting on May 26. May 26, that's a Sunday evening at 6 p.m. If you're not a member, you're still allowed. Anybody can come. But if you are a member, we really want you to be there on May the 26th, 6 p.m. Uh, and we'll discuss the budget, etc., things that are going on, things that are new, how it's different. Um, we're going to hand out the paper copies next week. Uh, but if you want to look at it right now, you can go to remedychurch.org slash budget, remedychurch.org slash budget, and then you'll see a place that you can download it, and you can take a look at uh, the proposed budget for 1920, July 1, all the way through June 30 for next year. So um, the next thing is, uh, as Jordan said, for those that are coming in, uh, for a little while, uh, we're going to start the sermon at the very beginning. So the, we'll do all the music after the sermon and Lord's Supper. So uh, if you have children, then children's check-in starts at 915. We, we've probably never just verbally said that. It's always been that way. But we want to make sure you know it starts at 915. If you have second service, which you don't because you're here, uh, it'll be at 11. So um, we uh, we've begin doing benedictions at the end of service. And so uh, because of the benedictions, we haven't been praying for a local church or an unreached people group. So I'm going to start that now. So uh, at, right at the beginning of my sermon, we'll start that. And so today, uh, as we pray and as we go into a time of the word, I'm going to pray for Park Baptist Church. Dave Keene's the pastor there. He's an awesome guy. And we pray for other churches in the area just so that everybody knows that we're not in competition with other churches. If every church around here that loves Jesus and loves the gospel uh, is going to start reaching the city, every, we need every one of them. There's no way that all 75,000 people in, or 80,000 probably now in Rock Hill can get reached unless we're, we're loving every church and praying for every church to be used. So I'm going to pray for Dave, pray for Park, uh, and pray for our time, and then we'll be in James chapter 1. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this time that we can open your word. I pray for my friend Dave and, and Park Baptist. Thank you for uh, his, my friendship with them. Thank you for their gospel work in the city. We pray that you continue to bless them and use them mightily in the city and that they would uh, reach many people for Christ. Um, we we pray also for, I pray for Dave and his marriage and his children, that he would be a good father and leader at home. And as he's doing that, it would spill over into the church as well. Um, thank you so much for him and, and, and this church, Park Baptist in the city. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, we are in James chapter 1 at Remedy. We stand when we read the, read the text. So if you're able to stand, uh, we're going to be in James chapter 1, starting in verse 9, and I'm going to read down to verse 18. At the very end, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you'll say, thanks be to God. Uh, and of course, you're thanking the Lord that he would give us his text, that he would be so kind to uh, speak to us so that we can hear from him. But also, let that for you be where you say, thanks be to God. You're also saying, Lord, the things that you show me today in the text, I want to say yes to, I want to obey, I want to live under. So starting in verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower fails and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. 
Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow or due to change. Of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. You can have a seat. So um, last week, we started in James chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, and... uh, If you weren't here, I just want to make sure you understand where James starts and what's going on in the book of James so that when we get to verse 9, you understand the context of what he's continuing in. So if you look at verse 2, it says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet, here it is, trials of various kinds. So the context that James begins with um, is... Speaking to Christians who are experiencing lots of trials, and he says trials of various kinds so that no one feels they're excluded. The biggest kind to the smallest kind, everybody that's experiencing a trial is in this. And you can see in verse 1 it says, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. So they had been dispersed. All They were in Jerusalem. Persecution had come, and they're being dispersed all over the place. And so largely the trials of various kinds were because of persecution. And so as he's writing that, we saw five things about trials. We saw that trials are going to happen to us, not if but when. They're all going to happen to us. God instructs us in these trials more so how we should think than how we should feel. We can't control how we feel, usually. We can, in a large part, control how we think. And God, while he wants us to to think about and control both, he largely is wanting us to uh, instruct us on how we should think. The next thing we saw is the Christian way to think about trials is to count them as pure joy. That's not what we instinctually do. But he tells us to count our trials as pure joy. And then he says, uh, or the next thing we saw is that God's agenda in our trials, the reason why we can count our trials as pure joy is because there's something that's going to result from it. And the thing that's going to result from it is... He has promised that we are going to be mature and complete. So the reason why a trial can be something great is because God has a purpose in it. It's not gratuitous. It always has a purpose. And the purpose is he desires our sanctification. He desires our maturity. He desires our completeness. And therefore, since that's the case, we can rejoice in it. And the last thing that we saw is since, since that's impossible in and of ourselves. the fifth thing we saw is that we, in the midst of trials, we need to ask God for wisdom. He tells us that in verse 4. So those are what we saw last week regarding trials and where the text was taken. Now, we need to remember, James is not jumping off that trial track and going to something else. He's still in the same mindset of that. And so whenever we go into verse 9, we need to know that that's what's going on. Um, uh, There's a little bit of review that I gave last week. I'll do really quickly about James just in case uh, you weren't here last week. It's all, by the way, in this book, if you want to grab it, uh, in in the... in the lobby, and it introduces the book of James for you. But James was the brother of Jesus. He was converted after the resurrection. He wasn't one of the 12 disciples. He was a skeptic. I mean, you would be too if your brother said he was the Messiah, but he was, he was a bit of a skeptic. And then the resurrection happened and he's like, well, this is true. This is true. And so when he writes, James writes, uh, in a very punchy, no nonsense, get it done. You got to obey kind of style. He's just get right to the point kind of guy. I love it. That's the kind of guy I am. So I enjoy his writing. And so as you're reading, uh, there's, of course, like times where you see, wait a second, James 2.24, I think it is, and Paul and uh, Romans 3.21, there's a difference between the way James describes faith and works and Paul describes faith and works. And there's not, and we'll get to it, uh, but that's beca- largely because uh, James wrote very early and the doctrine of justification hadn't been teased out exactly. Uh, as you go through the first century, James wrote very early. He was martyred in 62. He probably wrote this in late 40s. And so it came very early. But the second thing is, James, James' mentality, James' mindset is different than Paul's. James is a right to it kind of guy. Uh, since you're saved, since you're a Christian, this is what your life should look like. This is how it's supposed to be. So the book of James is largely um, things that you should live by and the way your, your life should look. So um, anyway, back over to the text here where we are in verse 9. So we see here, 
and verse 9, it seems like James is jumping tracks and, and he's talking about rich people and poor people uh, and how they should think. But he's not. He's still in the context of trials. And as he's writing about trials, he's saying that there's trials that can come to both of these people. And he says in verse 9, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and let the rich, you should supply the word boast there again, boast in his humiliation. So he's telling both of them to boast. Now, isn't boasting supposed to be wrong? You're like, boasting's bad. I always tell my kids, don't boast in yourself. Don't do that. Uh, We all dislike boasters when we're around people and they talk about how awesome they are. We're always like, okay, good for you. Like, we don't like being around them, right? Um, in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, it tells us that all boasting is supposed to be absolutely obliterated when it comes to the gospel. And so what is this boasting that James is talking of and why is he telling us to do it? We see in verse 9 that the lowly brother or the poor, someone who's a little bit more poor, is to boast in his exaltation. And the person in verse 10 that might be more rich is supposed to boast in humiliation. In both instances, they're supposed to be boasting. Why? Well, uh, we should understand that the boasting that they're doing is not boasting in themselves, but instead that they're boasting in the gospel's work in their life. And so boasting in the Christ, boasting in the gospel is not bad, right? It's actually what we should do. We know that uh, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, uh, let's see here. Gepco, GE Power Company. Here's Galatians. That was my little mnemonic. Uh, Galatians 6.14 says this. Um, Galatians 6.14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has crucified me and I to the world. So we're supposed to boast in the cross of Christ. By the way, the GE Power Companies, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, if you want to know how to memorize it in that order. Learned it in fourth grade. So anyway, back to, uh, back to here. So we see here that we're supposed to not boast in ourselves, but we're supposed to boast in the gospel. How do, we, how do we do that? What's being told to us to do here? First, we must remember that these verses are boasting about rich people and poor people in the context of trials. So... They're supposed to boast in their particular setting as trials. So we we know from verse 2 and following, this is about trials. And he's telling people in verse 9 and 10, both poor and rich, in the midst of a trial, you aren't supposed to boast in anything else besides the gospel. So this means whenever you're boasting in the gospel as a lowly person, as James says it, or someone who might be poor, what you're to remember when the world is looking down of you because of your circumstances, because things aren't going the way you want, you wish that you had more money, etc. Instead of reveling in that or talking about that or bringing it all out, you boast in the gospel because you realize that because of Christ, no matter how lowly or poor you might feel, because of Christ, because of Christ you are spiritually rich. And so whenever that's the case, you don't worry about your circumstance of poverty or lowliness. You can boast in the spiritual richness that you have in Christ. And that's what you say. Because of Jesus, he's made me spiritually rich. In the midst of this trial, it feels terrible. But Jesus has made me spiritually rich. And conversely, whenever you keep going into verse 10 and the rich in his humiliation, um, you boast in the gospel. You remember that no much how much money you have... Uh, you know that life can still hit you hard and things can still go bad. And so no matter how the world views you, you remember, I might have all the money in the world. I might have lots of things and my life isn't going well, but I don't need to boast in things that I have. Instead, I remember before God, I'm not rich. I'm spiritually bankrupt. And therefore, the gospel is what has made me rich, not the things that I have. And so you constantly remember Um, who you are in light of the gospel, and that's how you boast in the midst of that trial. You're only a Christian, and I'm speaking to verse 10 here, where it says, in the rich in his humiliation. And I would categorize probably every single person in this room in the verse 10 category, not the verse 9. Every one of us, compared to the world, are in the top 1%, likely. Compared to the world. You may not feel like it. You might be a college student eating ramen noodles. I've been there, right? I get it. Uh, trying to eat the the little orange hot dogs from the gas station that rotate on the little thing at midnight because that's all you can afford. I've been there, right? But we're still in the top 1% of the world. I want you to hear this. You are only a Christian because God has been generous to you, not because any achievements of your own. Instead, you are to boast in your humiliation, as it said. Delight in how much the gospel has shown you that you have dependence on God, not yourself. Because especially in this world, we can easily just rely on ourselves, get it done, get my job, make my money, buy my food. I got it. I can do it. 
Instead, we don't do that. We boast in Christ and what he's, what he's done, not in what we've accomplished, because everything you and I have is because God has been generous to us. He didn't have to let you be born in 1970 or 80 or 90 or 60. He didn't have to let you be born. He could have been born in another year, way a long time ago. He didn't have to let you be born in North America. There's lots of things that could have happened. So largely, largely where you are is because of Christ's generosity to us. So... <clears throat> All that the Father has done for the Son has been extended to all who are in Christ. And so we boast in Christ. We boast in the gospel. We boast in what Christ has done for us. Therefore, number one, the first thing, the title of the sermon is, Why do we have trials and temptations? Why do we have trials and temptations? Number one, I'm going to answer why we have trials. Number two, I'm going to answer why we have temptations. Number three, I'm going to answer why we have trials and temptations. Both. Number one. The reason why we have trials, you can go ahead and put it up. It's not up there? Okay, it's not up there. The first reason why we have trials is this. We have trials so we can boast in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have trials so that we can boast in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's verses 9 through 12. We have trials so that we can boast in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Trials, if we're, in, if we're remembering the context that we're in, trials are the premier time for us to boast in Jesus trials are the premier time for us to boast in Jesus. It's, it's where when everything has gone wrong, we can tell everybody, I've got no other hope here besides Jesus. You can point to what Christ has done for you in the gospel and say, he's my only hope. Trials are the premier time for us to boast in, in Christ. As Paul said in Galatians six fourteen. Far be it for me to boast in anything else except for the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. We should note that James actually expounds further for the rich in verse 11. So you've got a note to the poor in verse 9 and a note to the rich in verse 10. But as he expounds further into verse 11, he writes more to the rich. Notice what he writes. And I'll read, start in verse 10. And the rich for his humiliation. And then from 10b all the way down, he expounds further just to the rich. And he says, <clears throat> because a flower of the grass, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass and flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. And this amplifies James, as he writes, largely looks at Jesus's work on the Sermon on the Mount and uses it uh, as a way to write his book. And he's because of that, he's pointing us to to Matthew, this isn't in the Sermon on the Mount, but he's pointing us to Jesus' word when he says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. That's Matthew nineteen twenty four, And so he expounds further on these warnings to the rich. One, one commentator says this, the rich person is a wild flower that quickly passes away. One of the great deceits of wealth is the impression it gives of solidity. It feels permanent and dependable as if it can be counted on to bear the weight of our lives. We tend to equate wealth with security. Once we have enough financial resources squirreled away, we know we're covered. Life can throw what it likes at us, but we have this protective cushion of wealth. Money, we think, enables us to weather the storms. It's not true. It's not true. James' picture of choice for what wealth is not, for wealth is like, is not the foundation, stone, or sturdy pillar that buildings seem to need to keep them up. It's the wild desert flower. So wealth is not a stone. Instead, it's a wild flower. In its prime, in its prime, the flower is a thing of beauty. There's color and delicacy. And at times, in the desert, the landscape is carpeted by wildflowers, lending colorful hue to otherwise barren view. But the beauty is matched by their brevity. The beauty is matched by the brevity. Same thing with us when it comes to having money. Once the sun reaches its full height and blasts the land with scorching wind, and it's not long before the flowers are gone. The colors go, the life withers out of them, nothing is left. One quick blast of Middle Eastern sun and the whole show is over. Such is the way of wealth. Whatever it is, we have an abundance in this life. Whatever it is the world around us celebrates uh, in us, it can all disappear in the blink of an eye. We can go to sleep rich and wake up poor one day. And therefore, this continual uh, word to the rich is expounded to us, warning us. Uh, 
Sam Alberry says, It's a sign of good health indeed when a wealthy Christian enjoys reflecting on how they are nothing without Jesus. So, if you have financial security, don't revel in that. Don't think about it as something great. It can go away just like that. Instead, think about your relationship with God and the gospel and enjoy how you were nothing without Jesus, but because of Jesus, you've been forgiven of all your sin in the gospel, and now you are son and daughter. And this is in the midst of trials. He's, he's in the midst of trials. And then in verse 12, James concludes this little section of 9 through 12. Why do we have trials? I've already said number one is we have trials so that we can boast in the gospel of Jesus. He concludes this little section, 9 through 12, with a beatitude. As I said, James is looking and leaning heavily on the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. And he, he has his own little beatitude here in verse 12. The, the James beatitude. Verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. So he's back on the trial track. You, you thought he was gone, but he never left it. And he's telling you, whenever you're rich or whenever you're poor, whenever you have a trial, remain steadfast in the midst of the trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. This conclusion of a beatitudinal conclusion is helping us see that in the midst of trials we are to boast in the gospel because the gospel has given us this position that we are in Christ and since we have this position of being in Christ that's how we're able to as it says remain steadfast under trial and as we grow in the gospel we view ourselves in Christ we don't view ourselves as our financial status whether poor or rich As you grow in the gospel, you quit thinking about yourself as poor or rich in this world. You view yourself in the gospel. I am rich in Christ. And only in that way do you think of yourself. So uh, as we grow in that, we look at ourselves in Christ, not our financial status. And we have greater anticipation. I can't even say it. Anticipation. Is that right? Anticipation. I can't say it. You know what I mean? For some reason, I'm tongue-tied. And. We anticipate, I'm going to go with that way. We anticipate when all the trials come to an end. Anticipation. No, I can't say it. Why can't I say it? Anticipation. That's it. Anticipation. Woohoo! All right, anticipation. When, when finally all of our trials come to an end. Think of that. We're in the midst of trials and he's saying, don't think about your, your status right now, whether you're poor or rich. Instead, one day all the trials will be over. That's the day you look towards. Because you're in Christ. On that day, when that happens, he's going to give you the crown of life. He's going to give you the crown of life. Read it again. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. Which God has promised. God has promised. God has promised it. The crown of life to those who love him. Two things about this crown of life. Don't picture it as like the big Burger King crown. You know, that's not, that's not what it is, right? It's not the big, huge crown full of jewels or anything like that. The original hearers, the original readers would have immediately thought of the wreath that would be put on an athlete's head after running a long race. In the first century, when they ran a long race, long race the crown that they got was this kind of wreath that they given to them. And so when you're promised the crown of life, it's not this big, huge jewel crown, you know, like you get at Burger King or whatever. Instead, your mind should think of, oh, it's because I've run the race and been faithful and the Lord gives me the crown, the wreath around my head because of my faithfulness of running the race. So it's not like you're going to get this awesome thing. Instead, the picture here is that you've run through the trials of life victoriously and you finished the race to receive the crown. And also the second thing is because it's more about running the race. The second thing is the reward. The reward should not be thought of as some kind of crown or even a wreath. Instead, the reward of our end of life and the end of our trial is that when God meets us with the, the crown of life, that's eternal life. The thing that he gives us, he's not going to hand you a big gift. Like here's your wrapped up present of, a, of something to put on your head. That's not it. The gift that he gives us, the crown of life, is eternal life. The crown of life here can also be translated as the crown that is life. The crown that is life, which means at the end, whenever it's all over and you stand before Jesus and you are, because you're forgiven, he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Here's the crown of life. As in, here is the crown that is life. You receive eternal life forever. That's the gift. Eternal life with Jesus. Not some 
thing you put on your head that you can take a picture of and say, ah, I put it on my heaven Instagram. Like, that's not it. That's not it at all. It's God gives you eternal life with Jesus. That's how he's telling us in this beatitude. Stay, fast, stay steadfast under trials. Boast in the gospel and you receive eternal life. You receive eternal life. That's the first thing that we see. So the first thing, why do we have trials and temptations? Number one, we have trials so that we can boast in the gospel of Christ. Verses 9 through 12. Verse 13. Verse 13. Um, Let's read 13 through 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by, here it is, his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, bring forth, brings forth death. Now I want you to notice something here. Um, you've got in verse 3, count it all trials, my brothers, when you, when you meet various of kinds, verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So you have a testing from God in verse 3. But then here in verse 13, let no one say he, when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. So there's a difference between the two. Tests come from God. Temptations do not come from God. Two things are happening and they're different things. Testing comes from God. Tempting does not come from God. God loves you. He loves you more than you can imagine. So he gives you tests so that you can count it joy so that you can be mature and complete. God's desire is for you to be complete. Temptations come from a lot of things, from Satan, from yourself, etc. But Satan hates you. God wants your good. Satan wants to destroy you. God will test you so that you can be complete. Satan will tempt you so that he can destroy you. There's a massive difference between the two. God tests us to strengthen our faith. Satan tempts us to destroy our faith. God tests us to keep us from sin. Satan tempts us to cause us to sin. God loves us. Satan hates us. It may seem like James has switched topics here, but he hasn't. Tempting and testing are closely related to uh, each other. Um, They don't come from the same source. One from God, one not from God. The the temptations not are only from Satan, but they're also from ourself. But he's not shifting categories here. Instead, he's staying in the same kind of mindset. And here's how the difference is. They're similar because testing is talking about, so verses 1 all the way down to 12 that's the testing and trials is helping us understand how we react from external circumstances. Now he's shifting here and he's talking about tempting and saying about how we act regarding internal circumstances, internal thoughts. So the shift is just from external to internal, but nevertheless, he's moving from testing to tempting. It's true that yes, Satan does tempt us. James 4, 7, he walks around like a roaring lion ready to devour you. He does want you to be absolutely destroyed. But, uh, and it's also, we're tempted because we're in the line of Adam. Adam, when he and Eve sin, they pass along to us a corrupt human nature. And so, yes, we can blame those two things. We can blame Satan and we can blame our corrupt human nature from Adam. So it's Satan and Adam's fault. We can do that. But James avoids those common places of blame here. He does not blame those two people. There are places in scripture that point to those. Absolutely. But we're in James 1 right now, right? So the place that he wants us to see, James brings it home and he says, you have temptations because of you. You and your heart are sinful. So the second thing is, why do we have trials and temptations? Number two, number one, as I already said, we have trials so we can boast in the gospel of Jesus. Number two, we have temptations because we are utterly sinful. We have temptations because we are utterly sinful. Some may call this total depravity. We are utterly sinful. It's easy to blame Adam and Eve, or Adam and Satan. And again, the Bible in some ways points that out. But James doesn't do this here. We're tempted to sin because we are utterly sinful and we want to sin. So we are blamed even when we're tempted to sin. We're to blame. And here's why. 
Notice the, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of do two things here in verses 13 through 15. I'm going to show you the origin of sin and then how the anatomy of sin, how it actually starts. The origin of sin we can see uh, in verse 13 does not come from God. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. God is perfectly sinless. God never sins. He can never be responsible for sin or responsible for tempting anyone to sin. Let no one say, I am being tempted by God for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted. Well, here it is. This is not Matthew 3, Luke 3, Jesus in the wilderness, Satan tempting him. Notice he doesn't say Satan here. But each one is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. James is helping you internalize it. That you are tempted because of you. I am tempted because of me. We are utterly sinful. So, the origin of sin helps us see that it's not God. It's me. The world will try to convince us that the responsibility for temptation lies in our upbringing, lies in our friends, lies in our family, lies in our government, lies in our station of life. Anything but me. Anything but me. Scripture's clear. Romans seven eighteen. Nothing good lives in me. Nothing apart from Christ. Christ, that changes the whole ballgame. Me by myself, nothing good lives in me. So we are tempted with evil. We are tempted with evil. And this evil is our own desire. The desire that sins and wells up within us to sin comes from our own hearts. So number two, as I've said, we have temptations because we are utterly sinful. That's, that's the, the origin of how sin starts. Now watch here. He, he teases it out for us and he gives us the process, kind of the anatomy, the five steps of how it happens. Uh, you can see it in verse 13. So let no one say when he is being tempted. So the first kind of, if you look at the anatomy of sin and how it happens, the first is that temptation happens. When tempted, notice, uh, let no one say when he is tempted. When, not if. When. You will be tempted. Jesus was even tempted. He didn't sin, but you will be tempted. It's coming at any moment. Maybe right now. Maybe you're mad at me and you're tempted to blare out and angry uh, because I'm saying this. Nevertheless, Temptation is this way. Uh, think of temptation in this way. If you were to go fishing, this is, this is how temptation works. If you were to go fishing, you wouldn't just throw your hook out there with nothing on it, right? The little hook would hang there and the fish would say, not food, keep going, right? Temptation is you put something around the hook so it'll come in and it doesn't see the hook. That's the way temptation works. Temptation is um, it looks appealing, but if you were to m- move that away, it's not. It's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt you. That's temptation. Dressed up to look nice, going to hurt. It's tempting. It's alluring. It's going to look good. It looks appealing, but it's not. That's the first stage is temptation. You see it verse 13. Temptation comes, but then the next thing is deception. And, and it's coupled with temptation. Uh, it's not in this text, but it, it starts in Genesis 3. After we're tempted, we're deceived. We see it, and then we're deceived in that moment. Adam and Eve succumb to the deception. So are we. This is done when says, God says, this is what's best for you. But the temptation comes and deceives us and tells us, convinces us, deceives us, that's not what's best for you. God doesn't know what's best. You know what's best. We're tempted by it, and then we're deceived because we believe that God doesn't know what's best. I know what's best. So we're deceived. We're tempted, then we're deceived. That's a lie. It's a huge lie. And then after that comes desire. As soon as you're tempted and as soon as you're deceived, deceived, the desire takes over you. You can see it in verse 14. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. But each person is tempted when he is lured. That's the deception. Uh, enticed by his own desire. His own desire. We are both, this is so ironic. We are both the agent and the victim of our desires. We're the victim of our desires, but we're also the agent of our desires. It's quite ironic that we self-sabotage, but we do because of our sinful nature. We are both the agent and the victim of our desires. They come from our hearts. When we are tempted, it draws on our desires. The fish hook hides it and it's going to kill us. But we desire it anyway. This kind of desire is not good. It's disordered thought. It's desiring that which will kill us. And we know it. And yet we do it anyway. And when that desire happens, it gives birth. You can see in the text. This desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. 
So we've been tempted, we've been deceived, we've been desi- we've been des- uh, de- we have the desire, and after that is the disobedience. You can see it gives birth to sin. Sin, disobedience, same thing. We're tempted, we're deceived, we desire it, and then it gives birth to disobedience, to sin. <coughs> That's the fourth one, disobedience. It says, gives birth to sin. Disobedience is sin in action. You can deceive yourself and think, I'm just going to do it once and I'm going to let it get out of my system. But that's wrong. That is the worst way to think. But disobedience is the fourth one. It's whenever it actually, finally the desire takes over and you look at it and you say, I really desire it, I really desire, and then you do it. And in that moment you have disobeyed, you have sinned. And if you think, well, I'm just going to do it once and get it out of my system and then it'll finally be over and then I'll move on. That's absolutely the wrong way. This is not how sin works. Sin, don't miss this. Sin does not get weaker if you do it and get it out of your system. It only gets stronger when you do it. Sin does not get weaker when you do it and try to get it out of your system. It only gets stronger when you do it. Always. Think of it this way. Say you have a son and for a long time you invite your son to come arm wrestle you. Your entire life. Come arm wrestle me. And you get him, you give him, boom, ha ha. You know, like, I got you. You're only two. You know, like you, you destroy him, right? For a long time, you'll be able to arm wrestle your son and destroy him over and over and over and over. But he will never stop growing, your son, if you feed him. He will never stop growing, ever. And one day, your son is going to defeat you at arm wrestling. It's going to happen. It's inevitable. One day, he's going to break your arm and he's going to laugh at you and point and, you know, you got to go to the doctor or whatever. My point is this. Um, he will overtake you one day. In the same way, once sin has been given birth and the growth starts to reach the point where we can no longer control it, 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 it sin doesn't get weaker if you do it. It only gets stronger. And in the same way, if you feed it, it only gets stronger. If you feed your son, he only gets stronger and one day he'll overtake you. No matter what, every one of us will lose an arm wrestling match to our child one day, our son. Nevertheless, it's just like sin. It will only get stronger and only get stronger. It always keeps going. Sin never stops where we want it to. Sin always takes it further than what you want. Always. So the only way to kill sin is to starve it to death. The only way to kill sin is to starve it to death. I feel like I should have a parenthetical statement here. here. Just, this is where the analogy falls apart. Um, please don't starve your son to death. Just this is a side note. It's just an illustration. Um, that's where the analogy breaks down. But back to it. Um, if you feed it, if you do it once, it always grows stronger and it always goes farther than you ever intended. Always. It will destroy you. As a matter of fact, we'll see what, how it destroys you. J.C. Ryle says this. Sinful habits continually indulged in, even if you think, I'm just going to do it, get it out of my system so that it's done. Sinful habits continually indulged in are like trees, strengthened by age. A boy may bend an oak tree when it's a little sapling, but as it grows, a hundred men cannot root it up when it's a full-grown tree. Don't let sin ever grow and grow and grow in your life. It will kill you. That's what James says. Look what he says. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And here it is. And when sin is fully grown, when it's that big oak tree, brings forth death. It will always kill you. That's what he's saying. When disobedience is fully grown, it brings forth death. If, if we're going in our, in, our, in, our, our, in our anatomy of sin, temptation, deception, desire, disobedience, number five is death. And if desire is the date... And the disobedience and the sin is the hookup. Death is the baby. That's what it says. It gives birth to sin. And when it's fully grown, brings forth, same illustration, death. Giving birth to death. It brings forth death. This is the result of disobedience and sin. David Platt says this. The imagery of death is vivid and terrifying. And we need to see it for the horror that it is. Sin, when fully grown, brings forth death. This is where sin ultimately leads. Sin leads us to death. God warned 
Adam and Eve in the garden before they ever sinned in Genesis 2.17. If you do this, surely you will die. He tells them from the beginning. It leads to death. So how then? James wants us to see this anatomy of sin where it starts as temptation, how we're deceived, how our desires are evil, how we disobey, and how we die. He does this so that whenever we see temptation in the very beginning, what do we do? We don't even indulge in the temptation. Why do we have trials and temptations? Number two, we have it because we're utterly sinful. Therefore, what are we to do when the temptation comes? Not whenever the second part starts with deception or desire or right at the point of disobedience, we finally turn around. When the temptation comes, he's telling us all this so that when we know what are we supposed to do in that moment, right when the temptation happens, we're supposed to flee the other way. Now, if you do it, you starve it to death. Romans eight thirteen, Colossians three, five through 10, you kill it, put to death. Therefore, what's sinful in you put it to death. But if you haven't done it, when the temptation comes, what are you supposed to do at that moment? The Bible's clear. It's not stand up like some big tall soldier and fight. It's not, it's flee. It's run the other direction as fast as you can. You ever seen those videos when something happens and the people kind of stick around and you always see the people that are like, uh-uh, nope, I'm out of here. Then forget it. I'm not. That should be you. Every time a sin comes, you're just gone. I have Bible for that. I'm not just making that up. 1 Corinthians 6, 18, flee sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 10, 14, flee idolatry. 1 Timothy 6, 10, and 11, flee all kinds of evils. 2 Timothy 2, 22, flee youthful passions. Flee, run, get out of there. Don't let temptations even be around you. Because even as James says, the temptations are our fault. We have evil desires within us. You can't trust your heart. You can trust the Lord. You can trust his word. Run. Whatever sin you're in right now, run away and flee. Starve it to death and get out of there. It will kill you. That's what it says. So what do we do? What do we do? Verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. That's what we do. We don't be deceived. We, we can be deceived by forgetting how bad we are. We can be deceived by also forgetting how good God is. Don't be deceived. Now, That was the bad news, right? That was really terrible news. Point two was really like, oh man, I'm depressed. Good thing point three is not that way. Here's three. Starting at verse 17 through 18. Here it is. 16 through 18. Why do we have trials and temptations? Number three, we have trials and temptations to remind us that we have a great savior. We have a great savior. An amazing savior who saves us from all of these things we just talked about, from our reckless, sinful habits, our reckless, sinful thoughts, our reckless, sinful decisions that kill us. We have a great Savior that has forgiven us, taken the place of us that we deserve to to die for it, and forgiven us all of it, and then invites us in to eternal life forever. We'll see it here in verse 16 through 18. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Here it is. Every good and perfect gift... Is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth. Notice he's continuing in the birth language, but it's not negative, it's positive. He talked about the birth of death. Now he's talking about the birth of new life. And how does it happen? By the word of truth. That's James' word for the gospel. That we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So here, number three, Why do we have trials and temptations? We have trials and temptations to remind us that we have a great Savior. A great Savior. And in these verses, there's two things he wants us to do. There's two things I think that he wants us to do. Number one, he wants us to know God. And number two, he wants us to know the gospel. Know God, know the gospel. Here's how he wants us to know know God. He tells us something about God. He tells us that he's sovereign. Verse 17. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. So know God. What's the first thing you should know? That he's sovereign. He's the Father of lights. This means that he's the creator. He made the stars and he put them all into place. He created all the planets. He created you. He put everything. He's the Father of lights. He created every single thing in the world. Know this. Know this about how he is. How great and expansive he is. How amazingly powerful he is. How he's far more powerful than you ever could conceive of. He's the Father of lights. He's the cosmic and glorious God from whom all things are possible. Sam Alberry says. The cosmic and glorious God from whom all things are possible. He wants us to know God. Now, juxtapose 
calling him the father of lights to as John uh, 8, 844 calls the father of lies, Satan. The father of lies brings up your past. The father of lies forgives your past. The father of lies corrupts your mind. The father of lights renews your mind. The father of lies destroys you. The father of lights delivers you. He's amazing. No God. He's sovereign. He's great. He's the father of lights. He's also dependable. Look what it says. No variation. Every good and perfect gift comes down from God for the father of lights with whom there is no variation. No variation. The, uh, knowing God. No, what is it? Uh, what's his name? Tozer wrote knowledge of the holy. And he wrote in there, he has like 20 attributes of God. And I can still remember it in like 15 years ago. There was one called immutable. And I was, I never heard that word. What the world's immutable. It means never changing. And that's a good thing for us. It's, we need to change. <laughs> like we need to grow. We need to get better. If God changes, that means he became something else from what he was, good or bad. And if he changes, he either wasn't God enough because he needed to get better. Or if he gets worse, that means he's not God anymore. So he has to be immutable at the top, always of his game. He can never get better. He can never get worse. And that way he's God. And if he ever gets better, then he wasn't God before. And now he is. And that's bad. And if he gets worse, that means he's not God. So when we see he's immutable, it means he's at the tip top of his game. Never, ever can get better. There is no, he, there, there is no improvement. He's immutable. No variation. That's who we serve. This means he's dependable. Absolutely dependable. 100% of the time. You ask me to do something, I'm going to forget it. I'm going to forget it. I'm not dependable a lot of the times. He is, because no variation, immutable. Rock solid, never changes, always. Alberry says, God is not fickle and he doesn't have phases. We are not the flavor of the month for him at this time. And then he'll cast us aside later and forget about us. God is always good to us. And his commitment to us never fails. He's always good to us. He's, so when we're talking about knowing God, he's sovereign and he's dependable. He's the father of lights and there's no variation. Next thing is he's gracious. He brings us forth of his own will. Every good and gift is from above. The father of lights, whom there's no variation, shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth. Of his own will, he brought us forth. That's grace. None of us deserve to be brought forth out of God's will. This is sheer grace. He is the God that gives new birth. He is the God that regenerates us. James has mentioned the birth and death in verse 15 when discussing how sin is begotten. Now, if you're in Christ, that birth no longer defines you. It's the new birth that defines you. And God is gracious to give you the new birth. No longer the birth and death. Now, the birth unto new life in Christ. Sheer grace that he does this. So he's sovereign, he's dependable, and he's gracious. That's how we know God. But we also, in these texts, in the exact same verses, can see the gospel. We can know the gospel. And there's three ways he tells us the gospel. I just mentioned the first one. The new birth. He brought us forth. This is the new birth. This is regeneration. So you and I were dead in our sins, and God comes down, boom, regenerates us. He takes us dead and gives us a heartbeat again. And opens our minds and open our eyes. He lets us see and understand the beauty and the, uh, and the magnitude of the gospel. We all of a sudden, we see it. And we're like, whoa, forgiveness from Jesus. He died for my sin. And in that moment, yes, I want it. That's called regeneration. This is the new birth that Jesus talks about in John chapter 3 when he's talking to Nicodemus. How will any of us cause ourselves to be born? You can't. It's the point he makes with Nicodemus. You can't make yourself be born. Someone else has to do it. Physically and spiritually. And the only person that can make you be reborn is God. Spiritually. So that's the first thing about the gospel is he is the one that gives us the new birth. And the way in which he does that is secondly in the gospel, the word of truth. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth. By the word of truth. We died to sin Because someone spoke to us and we listened to the temptation spoken to us and we did it. In the same way, we come alive when we hear the spoken word of truth to us and we believe. Both come from hearing. Both bring forth vastly different things. 
So when we know the gospel, the first is that we know the new birth. The second thing is that we know because it comes the word of truth. God is so kind to us, he chose to have his word spoken to us. God is in this much control that he could have not let you hear the word of truth. You could have been born in one particular year in one particular region of the earth and never heard the word of truth. That's happened. Romans 1. We know what happens. God's so kind to us that you got to hear the word of truth written on your hearts, hearts that were so utterly sinful that now you can be saved. So anything good in us is because, it is because of God's undeserved goodness to us. So we know in the gospel, we see that it's the new birth and it happens by the word of truth. And when that happens, we become now recipients of new life. He says it in the, the end of verse 18, brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be here as a kind of first fruits of his creation. That's the recipients of new life. The gospel is he gave us a new birth by the word of truth and now we have new life. The picture of the first fruits is carries in the idea of a foretaste of what's to come. It's a foretaste of what's to come. So first fruits are kind of the initial batch of a farmer's crop that proves and guarantees that the rest of the harvest is on its way. That's what's happening here, this new life that he's given to us. This means that when he gives you new life and he, he saves you, it's just the beginning. This is crazy. When he saves you, you think, whoa, it couldn't get any better. It's the first fruits. It's the first taste to let you know that everything else that's coming is a guarantee. When he gives you new life, it's the first, it's the very beginning of everything that God's going to do in your life. We think new life is like, wow, out of this world, what an amazing thing. And he's like, that's the beginning of everything I'm going to do in your life for eternity. That's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. He's going to renew not just you, but all of creation forever. The first fruits is amazing. The work that he's done in our new birth will one day lead to a new heaven and a new earth where there will be no more trials and no more temptations. That's what he's taken us to when we get to that point to where as we're looking at trials and temptations, one day when you're in the new heavens and the new earth, no more trials and no more temptations. It's all over. You persevered through. You've, won, you've run the race. You finished it. Come on in. Receive the crown of life. It's all over. No more trials. No more temptations. In the meantime, right now, there will be trials. There will be temptations. But every good gift from above comes from God's hand. Verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above. In the meantime, every good gift that we have is from above. It comes from God's hand. Therefore, our trials and our temptations right now are meant right now to remind us that we have a great Savior and that we are to boast in Him and what He has done for us. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your massive goodness to us. You are amazingly kind to us. In the midst of trials, in the midst of tests, in the midst of temptations, all these things are to point us to the gospel that we are to boast in it and be reminded of this amazing Savior we have in Christ. God, we love you so much. Help us as we try to live this out, God. Help us point our minds, point our hearts towards you to give you glory, to live for you in your honor, in your majesty. Help us never take credit for anything, but instead boast only in the cost, whether we're lowly or whether we're rich. None of that matters. Because we're rich in Christ Jesus. We are utterly spiritually bankrupt, completely dependent upon you. But because of the gospel, it's the beginning of everything you're going to do in our life. You're worthy of all the glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to a time of.